fourth week of four weeks in looking at a letter written to Titus by Paul the Apostle. And I want to do a bit of a review today because I realized a lot of you guys were enjoying this endless summer and away. And uh, so it's a great chance to catch you up a little bit on what, what you might have missed. So we're going to watch a little bit of a video. We watched it at the beginning of the series, but uh, lots of you were, didn't get to see it. So we'll watch it. It's about eight minutes long. gives you an overview of everything that's written in Titus. And then I'm going to come and add to that as we finish. So, so let's start with that video. Paul's letter to Titus. Titus was a Greek follower of Jesus who was for years a trusted co-worker and traveling companion of Paul's. He had helped Paul in a number of crisis situations in the past, and in this letter we discover that Paul had assigned him the task of going to Crete, a large island off the coast of Greece, to restore order to a network of house churches. Now, Cretan culture was notorious in the ancient world. One of the Greek words for being a liar was kretidzo, to be a Cretan. These people were infamous for treachery and greed. Most of the men on the island had served as mercenary soldiers to the highest bidder, and the island cities were known as being unsafe, plagued by violence and sexual corruption. However, the island of Crete had many strategic harbors, and they serviced cities all over the ancient Mediterranean Sea. And so, from Paul's point of view, Crete was the perfect place to start a network of churches. Now, we don't know the details, but somehow these churches came under the influence of corrupt Cretan leaders. They said they were Christians, but they were ruining the churches. And so Paul assigned Titus with the task of going there to set things straight, and this letter provided the instructions. It has a pretty straightforward design. After a brief introduction, Paul gives Titus clear instructions about his tasks in the church. He then offers guidance about the new kind of household and then about the new kind of humanity that the gospel could create in these Cretan communities. Paul then closes the letter with some final greetings. So Paul opens the whole thing by reminding Titus that his message as an apostle is about the hope of eternal life, that is, the life of the new creation, that is available starting now through Jesus the Messiah. And this hope was promised long ago by the God who does not lie. Now, this little opening comment introduces an important theme underlying the whole letter. One of the problems in the Cretan churches was that they had assimilated their ideas about Jesus, the Christian God, to their ideas about the Greek gods that they grew up with, specifically Zeus, their chief god. Cretan people claimed that Zeus was actually born on their island, and they loved to tell stories and mythologies about Zeus's underhanded character. He would seduce women and lie to get his way. And Paul wants to be really clear. The God revealed through Jesus is totally different than Zeus. His basic character traits are faithfulness and truth, which means the Christian way of life will be about truth also, which will be a real change for these Cretans. So Paul then addresses Titus with a twofold task. He says the first one is to appoint new leaders for each church community, a team of what he calls elders, mature husbands or fathers whose way of life is totally different from Cretan culture. They are to be known for integrity, total devotion to Jesus for self-control and generosity, both in their families and in the community at large. And these new leaders are to teach the good news about Jesus and replace the corrupt leaders who need to be confronted. That's Titus's second task. Paul identifies the teachers as those of the circumcision. In other words, they were ethnically Jewish Cretans 
who said that they followed Jesus, but similar to the problems in Galatia, these people demanded that non-Jewish Christians be circumcised and follow the laws of the Torah if they really wanted to become followers of the Jewish Messiah. Paul says that they're obsessed with Jewish myths and human commands. And to top it off, they're just in the church leadership business to make money. And so Paul, in a brilliant move, he pulls a quote from an ancient Cretan poet, Epimenides, who was very frank and honest about the character of his own people. He said Cretans are always liars, vicious beasts, and lazy gluttons. They blur the lines between true and false, between good and evil, and they're just in it for the money. And so while these leaders claim to know God, their Cretan way of life denies him. They have to be dealt with. And this leads Paul into the next section. Because of these corrupt leaders, many Christians in these churches now have homes and personal lives that are a total wreck. And three different times, Paul highlights the result of all this. The message about Jesus is discredited. Their non-Christian neighbors now have good cause to make evil accusations. And all of this makes the teaching about God our Savior totally unattractive and not compelling to anybody. So Paul paints a picture of the ideal Cretan household that is devoted to Jesus. It would be elderly men and women who are full of integrity and self-control so they can become models of character to the young people. And the young women shouldn't be sleeping around and avoiding marriage, as was fashionable on Crete at the time, but rather they should be looking for faithful partners so they can raise stable, healthy families. And the young men are to do the same. They're to be known as productive, healthy citizens. Christian slaves on Crete were in a unique position because we know that because of the gospel, they were treated as equals in Paul's church communities. However, there was a danger that they would use that equality as license to disrespect their masters and then become associated with slave rebellions, which would further discredit the Christian message. You can see Paul negotiating a fine line here. He believes that the gospel about Jesus needs to prove its redemptive power in the public square if it's really going to transform Cretan culture. And that's not going to happen through social upheaval or by Christians cloistering away from urban life. The Christian message will be compelling to Cretans when Christians fully participate in public life, when their lives and homes look similar on the surface. Because after a closer look, their neighbors will discover that Christians live by a totally different value system out of devotion to a totally different God. And that's the difference that Paul beautifully summarizes at the end of chapter 2. He says the value system driving the Christian way of life is God's generous grace, which appeared in the person of Jesus and will appear again at his return. This grace was demonstrated when Jesus gave up his honor to die a shameful death on behalf of his enemies so that he could rescue and redeem them. And it's that same grace that calls God's people to say no to corrupt ways of life that are inconsistent with the generous love of God. Paul then zooms out from the Christian household to a vision of Christians living like new humans in Cretan society. Of all people, Christians should be known as the ideal citizens, peaceable, generous, obedient to authorities, known for pursuing the common good. But this is really different from how Cretans grew up. How are Christians supposed to sustain this countercultural way of life? And Paul believes the power source is the transforming love of the three-in-one God announced in the gospel. And he explores this with a really beautiful poem. He says, God's kindness and love are what saved us, despite ourselves, so that through the Holy Spirit, God washed and rebirthed and renewed people 
and through Jesus has provided a way for people to be declared right before him. And all of this opens up eternal life, that is, a new future in the new creation. This living story is so powerful, it can produce new kinds of people. Paul's convinced that spirit-empowered faithfulness to the teachings of Jesus will declare God's grace all over the island of Crete and all over the world. Paul concludes by promising to send backup for Titus, either Artemis or Tychicus, and then he says hello to their common friends. And so the letter ends. The letter of Titus shows us Paul's missionary strategy for churches to become agents of transformation within their communities. It won't happen by waging a culture war or by assimilating to the Cretan way of life. Rather, he calls these Christians to wisely participate in Cretan culture. They need to reject what's corrupt, but also embrace what's good there. If they can learn to live peaceably and devote themselves to Jesus and to the common good, Christians will, in his words, show the beauty of the message about our saving God. And that's what the letter to Titus is all about. All right, now you got it all memorized and you're good. <laughs> it's a lot to take in, but for those of you who have seen it once, maybe some of it rings again. Um, you see it again. I actually threw out a challenge, I think, through my pastor's heart email at the very beginning of the, of the series to encourage people to read the book of Titus. And, uh, and then I checked the next week, and not too many people have read it. So I, uh, I sort of pulled back. And I, my, my initial challenge was read the book of Titus and check out every time it says the word good and what it says about good. Because the book of Titus talks about doing good and being good and a lot. Um, and then I said, well, just read the book of Titus, right? You'll, you'll catch on that it talks about good if you just read it. You don't even have to highlight all the words good. But I thought I would grab those good statements now that we're reviewing a little bit, and I'd pull them up for you so you could see them all together. So, um, so here's the results of the assignment if you did it. If you did it, good for you. If you didn't, you're getting the cheat notes here at the end. You're, you're so lucky. So can I pull that up? The good statements of Titus. There we go. Okay. The good statements of Titus. Okay. So let's, these are going sort of cro or in order through the book. So first, since an overseer, now I've abbreviated most of them because they were a few verses long, so I've abbreviated them to shorter statements. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be one who loves what is good. Remember, Titus' first job was to get good leadership in the churches. And so you gotta want, it's got to be one who loves what is good. And then get rid of bad leadership. False teachers, their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. They're actually exactly like the rest of the Cretan culture, which was struggling to be good. <laughs> They're unfit for doing anything good. Okay, so got to get good leaders in, get rid of leaders who are unfit for being good. Then likewise, teach the older women to teach what is good. Now you get into the second chapter, and you get into these commands for the different age groups, right? Older women, older men. Uh, younger women, younger men, and the older women were to teach the younger women, and the older men were to teach the younger men and be examples to them. So, likewise, teach the older women to teach, surprisingly, no, what is good. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good, right? Show these young guys what it looks like to live a good life. Uh, okay, next ones. And then this great verse in the middle, I could really sum it all up, but Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager 
to do what is good. So eagerness to do what is good is something that marks the people who follow this Jesus. And then remind the people to be ready to do whatever is good. We'll look at that today. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. Is that, that's it? Or is there one more? Oh, here we go. Two more. One more. <laughs> and that's my notes that I shouldn't have highlighted. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. Okay, this is actually my next notes. Why such an emphasis <laughs> on doing good? Why is, why is Paul, when he's writing to Titus about this strategy for what they're going to do on the island of Crete, why does he keep emphasizing doing what is good, doing what is good, doing what is good? Well, there's, there's three reasons given in Titus chapter 2, okay? And, uh, and we'll look at them real quickly. One is so that no one will malign the word of God. The second one is so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. And three, so that in every way they'll make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. So people have nothing bad to say about the Bible, nothing bad to say about Jesus' followers, and nothing bad to say about Jesus himself. Because, why? Because people are living such good lives. Now this is a tall order, isn't it? Living such a good life that people have nothing bad to say about the Bible, nothing bad to say about Jesus' followers, and nothing bad to say about Jesus himself. Think about in Canadian culture, not just Cretan culture, but Canadian culture uh, or North American culture, right? Is there, is there whispers out there that maybe the Bible's not good, maybe Jesus' followers aren't good, that maybe Jesus himself is not good? Yes, there are those out there. And what's, what's the way to, to counteract that? Is meet a Christian, who is transformed by the message of Jesus and lives such a good life that it changes people's minds, right? So you, say, so you have a preconceived idea about Christians. Oh, they just hate everybody. Well, meet one. Meet one. The majority of the ones I know don't. In fact, quite the opposite. Very loving, very kind. But you do have, like the story after story, and lots of them of where someone met a Christian and that actually became the obstacle to them coming to faith. Even if they came to faith later on. I have a really good friend that uh, before he was a Christian, I really offended him with something I said. And it was sort of like a dumb thing to say. Dumb things Christians say. I could whatever. But I said something really dumb in my naivety and he was really offended. Later on when he became a Christian, I, I wrote him an email and I just said, can you tell me some of the dumb things we do? <laughs> and try not to make it too pointed because I know some of them are dumb things I do. But he wrote me a really frank letter about before I was a Christian, these were obstacles. I kept running into these things where it seems like Christians uh, were proud or arrogant or there's lots of different things that, that, that uh, made me feel excluded or lots of different things. He wrote, again, I'm not going to recap his whole letter, but he basically said, here's the things. These were obstacles. And I realized that even as I was part of the problem, that part of that was God had yet to transform that area of my life. God had yet to do the internal revolution that the gospel brings, or is meant to bring to every heart in that area of my life. And so I had offended him. I had set up an obstacle to him receiving the gospel. When he did receive the gospel, I asked him for forgiveness, and I also have taken pains to change that in my life. 
Peter sort of pointed out the tension that we, we have. 1 Peter 4.4 4 says it this way. This, Paul wrote the book to Titus, but Peter uh, was one of Jesus' earliest followers here. In 1 Peter 4.4, 4, he says, They're surprised. This is what you might experience. I don't know if you've experienced it yet, but they, you might experience this in your lifetime. They are surprised, if you live a good life, that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they'll heap abuse on you. So, well, that's the opposite of what we're talking about. We're supposed to live good lives, and then people will think good of God or think good of Christians. But no, it says that that might not be the case. Even if you live an incredibly good life, it might not end up, they might actually just think you're a loser because you're not jumping in with all the things that they're doing. So this is not like a, if you say, oh, great, Pastor Steve's giving us the blueprint to how to make everyone like us. No, I don't have a blueprint for that. In fact, when I read the Bible, I see that they hated Jesus and his followers get hated and by different people. But we are still called to live the good life, uh, the good lives this described in Titus here. Let me give the other side of P- Peter's thing. He's saying you might be in a situation where because you don't join people in evil, they'll, they'll abuse you. They'll treat you badly. They'll mock you, right? But 1 Peter 2.12 says, Still, live such good lives among the pagans. Those are non-believers. It sounds like a terrible word now. But among the people who don't believe, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So it's like, hey, join us in this thing. Uh, I can't join you in that thing because I don't think it's right. Join us in making fun of our coworker. Join us in pranking the teacher. Join us in whatever. And you say, I can't. Oh, you goody two-shoes. Oh, you, you know, oh, you're just too Christian for that. Or whatever they say about you, they mock you initially. But let a good life win out over the long term. So that even though they accuse you of doing wrong initially, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. That's our hope. Our hope is that people will see the transformation that Jesus brings to our own lives and will desire that transformation themselves. That means we truly actually have to be transformed. So what kind of lives could followers of Jesus live that would turn critics into fellow believers? Well, Paul's got some instructions regarding this in the third chapter of his letter to Titus. And we're going to read that together. So let's, let's put that up on the screen. Titus chapter 3, and we're going to read 1 to 8 together. Let's stand. Let's stand. It's the word of God. Let's stand for reading the word. That, this is the part you've got to take the most seriously. When I do my commentary, the less seriously, because it's not nearly as good as the word of God. Okay, so let's, let's read this. Okay. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient to be ready to do whatever is good. To slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle towards everyone. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Christ our Savior. So that, 
having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Thank you for reading along. You may be seated. So Paul writes to Titus, he says, basically, I'm going to put it in a bit of a nutshell. He said, I want you to create a culture within the culture that is marked by doing good. But don't just stop there. Don't just create a culture that sort of, you know, let's, like sometimes Christians get this idea. Let's stay pure from the world. Let's not have any interaction with people who aren't believers. And then that's the way we're going to have this really good culture. Well, that doesn't give anyone access to the transformation that Christ is doing in your life. And I don't think it's actually healthy, right? And and, and as much as I believe the world needs the church, I think the church needs the world. I'm actually sort of quoting Joe Duick in saying that, but uh, it's true, it's true. We're not meant to be cloistered away and separate. We're actually meant to interact, right? So don't just stop with uh, having a culture within the culture that's marked by doing good interact in such a way with those around you that they personally experience the good that Jesus is creating in you and your spiritual family. So what were the ways that, there were, that we were to interact? The first two verses of chapter 3 give us, um, give us some hints. Give us some hints. It's not a fully comprehensive list, but it was helpful uh, to those on the island of Crete, and I think it's helpful for us today. The first verse says in, in chapter 3, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities to be obedient. I'll stop there. So, Christians should be obedient to authorities, right? Now, you say, well, that's okay. I, sort of, I can go with that. Most of the laws I agree with. Well, even with the laws they disagree with. Okay. I actually struggled more over this verse than anything else in the whole book of Titus. Because I thought about all the laws that could be enacted, and some of the ones that are enacted, and I don't like them all. And I imagine some coming that I won't like. Maybe I'm just being doom and gloom. But, but, and I think, oh, I don't want to obey that. In fact, I'm not even sure if I should obey that. And, and here's the compounding thing. When I feel that an unjust law is made that affects me, or could be made that it affects me, then I really struggle to think about obedience. In fact, I think about fighting. I think about um, standing up. I think about... Uh, refusing to obey. So I had to really sort this one out uh, with God the other day. Um, I realized that in me is a desire, is, um, let me just put it this way, the struggle results around when I experience an injustice, I want to fight back. And I don't just want to fight back because I'm a, a great warrior for justice, I want to fight back because I hate my rights being removed. I hate my life being limited. Why do I want to? And I like to get revenge on people who do me bad. That was the one I didn't want to admit. (laughs) It took a lot of wrestling (laughs) to get back. Well, if they do that, I am going to do this. I'm going to say this. I'm going to talk about them this way. I'm going to, I'm going to rally the troops. I'm going to, 
Obeying authorities when you don't agree is hard. And I think that if you think there are unjust laws, you should do everything you can to change them within the law. We live in a democracy. There are ways you can you know, write your MP, you can do petitions, you can, uh, you can rally, you can march, you can do... There's lots of things you can do. I think you should do those things when there are unjust laws. Um, but, I th- but those are all lawful. I think we have to save civil di- disobedience for the gospel. We have to save it for the gospel. Uh, if you're just disobeying all the laws and then you also disobey, like people say, hey, you shouldn't preach the gospel, and you say, well, I'm just used to disobeying everything in the law. I don't think you get any street cred for that. I don't think people say you're living a good life. They'll say that guy who lives a bad life also does this other bad thing. But if you obey the law, if you say, yes, officer, thank you for giving me a ticket today. I certainly deserved it. Yes, I I recognize that you're authority, and you have a good day as well. (laughs) I practice these things. (laughs) Because I need them sometimes, occasionally. Not as much lately. I'm doing good. But if you're living a good life in that way, if you're respecting authority, if you're obedient to authority when you have to, be civilly disobedient, it'll, it'll actually stand out from the rest of your life. You'll say, whoa, here's a guy who's never broken the law and is suddenly breaking the law. Let's pay attention. That actually matters, right? So I think of the, the disciples in the early days where they got arrested and, the, and the, the, the leaders of the time said, don't you dare preach about this Jesus. Don't talk to anyone about this Jesus again. They said, ah, sorry. Are we supposed to obey God or you? We're going to obey God, Right? And that's what they did. And they faced the repercussions for it, and they willingly went down that road, right? But it wasn't that their whole life was about going around and vandalizing and kicking over road signs and, you know, and, and uh, you know, doing 110 in a 40 zone. You know, it, that's not wasn't their life. They saved that for that moment. Let's go to the next one. Be ready to do what is good. Be ready to do what is good. You know what I, I realize about my own life is that when I'm driven, like when I'm under just like, oh man, I'm just so, like I'm driven, I must get these things done, where it's just sort of my internal engine is so fired up and it's, you know, I'm redlining. I am not ready to do anyone good. I don't have time to stop to help anyone do good. The story of the Good Samaritan, you know, the guy on the side of the road, I step over them and keep on going. Why? Because I'm driven. But when I'm led by the Spirit of God, that's different. When I'm driven, whew, all bets are off. I don't think I'm ready to do good. But when I'm led by the Spirit of God, I'm expecting interruptions to my schedule. I'm expecting that I'll have people meetings that God himself set up. And then I'm ready to do good. I'm like, God, what's the good you want to do right now? What's the good you want to do in this in- interaction? What's the good you want to do for this person? How do you want to bless them through me? How do you want to, Right? There's a lot more of that adventure involved in the whole thing instead of just a life that's, that's going at 110 and, and uh, the accelerator stuck to the floor. So be ready to do what is good. So, so, so you've got a life where someone obeys the authorities, uh, even when it's difficult. You've got someone who's ready to do good, right? They take that time. They're taking that time with people in their lives. And then it says to slander no one. To be peaceable and considerate and always to be gentle towards everyone. I'm just going to lump that all together. Slander is a pretty important word. Um, one way you slander people is by just lying about them. 
right? And you might lie about them to get revenge, right? So they did me wrong. I'm going to tell other people the story of how they did me wrong. And I'm also, this is another part of slander, so you could just straight up lie about them. But another way you could do it is just to assume about them, right? So if you say, well, this person's done me an injustice, I assume that not only do they do this, but they have evil intentions in every corner of their heart. Now, when I do someone injustice, I assume people think, Steve has good intentions in every corner of his heart. See how unfair that is? That's the halo effect that we all have in our lives. You do something wrong, clearly you're an evil person. I do something wrong, clearly I'm a good person who made a mistake. (laughs) Slander always assumes that the other person doesn't have a shred of anything good in them. They have no good intentions. It makes a villain out of them. Right? So don't slander anyone. Don't slander anyone who's far away from you in the government. Throw that one out because that's where, you know, Coffee Row, we sometimes lean into slander. Right? Don't slander anybody in your community. Don't slander anybody in your school, in your workplace, even in your immediate family. Right? When you have a contentious argument, don't slander. Don't say that the other person is evil to the core. (laughs) That's not true. They have goodwill towards you. They won't have it if you keep saying that thing about them. Okay? So, slander no one. Be peaceable and considerate. Always be gentle towards everyone. One of the verses, I didn't list it on the PowerPoint, but don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of, your t- out of your mouth. If you follow that rule in every area of your life, even when you're having confrontations, even when you're having arguments or debates, they would be civil. They would. Say, so, well, that's an interesting perspective, and I'm glad you brought that up, and you're a very intelligent person, and, and here's the three ways I will come back and push back on what you are thinking. Isn't this pleasant? Isn't this wonderful? Let's have some more tea. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what's helpful for building one another. Or 1 Thessalonians 4.11. It says, therefore, encourage one another and build each other up. That's for the church. That's written to the church. Therefore, I was like teaching this one because it's got great actions. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up. I learned it in Sunday school. Anyhow, encourage each other. You know what? I want to say, let me encourage someone. This church is good at encouraging. You are. I've... I can say that, like, not as a newbie. I've been a part of this church since 2002. So, actually, in about a month, I'll be at my 15th anniversary here. I'm excited. And this church has been so encouraging the last 15 years. I don't know what you're like before that. Maybe you're a mess. But you were great the last 15 years. Really great. Really encouraging. Really, you are. You're a very encouraging congregation. That, that is great. Don't ever take it for granted. That's not the same everywhere. Keep encouraging each other building each other up. Keep using your words to speak life into people. That's very important. Slander no one. Be peaceable and considerate. Always be gentle towards everyone. So you've got this person who obeys authorities, and and they're ready. They stop. They've got time for people to do good in their lives, and they're intentionally doing that, and then they're not slandering, and they're peaceable, and they're considerate, and they're always gentle towards everyone. I think that is the kind of person what, what... Peter was talking, right, about where Peter says, live such good lives 
that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So somebody might have a preconception about what a Christian is. And that might not be a bad preconception. And then they meet you. And that's God's opportunity to rewrite the script in their mind. Isn't that wonderful? Does it make you nervous? Does it make you think, oh, God has a lot of work yet to do on me? That's what I think. I think, oh, thank you for the work you've done, Lord. But clearly, your gospel needs to affect me more. It needs to work in me more. You know what I've found? Sometimes people say, um, when I get attacked, you, I'm trying to switch this script in my mind. I get attacked, say, well, you Christians are like this. I'm always trying to defend, you know, the cause, stuff like that. And sometimes I get defensive. I wish I could almost, I wish I could do this. I, I can't do it reflect, instinctively, but I wish I could say, you know what, you haven't even heard the half of it. It's worse than that. You want to know what my heart is like? Everything you can imagine bubbles around down there. Lust, greed, envy, fear, anger, hatred, it's all there. I'm a train wreck. But you know what? Jesus has been working in my life and some of those things are getting fixed. It's amazing what he's doing. Because I am more broken than the average person. I really am a wreck inside, internally. I'm discovering every time I discover more about my heart, I discover dark things that are hidden there. But the good thing is God is working in my life to change those things because he's not like that. He's different. I wish I could do something like that. Instead, I, get, I usually get defensive, but God's good. And he's taking us on a long journey of changing us bit by bit, if we're willing, if we're not resistant. And he'll allow that change to transpire. So what's the motivation for being obedient, obeying the authorities, not slandering, and being peaceable and all those things? It's in the next verses. It says, at one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. That's our condition. That's our, don't say that about someone else. Say, hey, I can relate to you. At one time, I too was foolish, disobedient. That's arrogance. Nip that in the bud, okay? That's arrogance, okay? Say, this is, my re- this is the real me. This is the real me. The more I allow God in his graciousness to work in my life, the more he reveals stuff that's really selfish and then deals with that stuff that's really selfish. And he's changing me. And sometimes I'm resistant. I'm stubborn. And then other times I'm willing and he does neat things. But this, if there's contempt in our hearts towards people who aren't followers of Jesus at all, even just a minute amount, this should fix it. At one time, we were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Now you say, well, I became a Christian when I was five. That doesn't describe me at five. Well, let's just say all those things were there in seed form. Just the bad tree hadn't grown up yet. And all those things are still at war within us. Those same forces are at war within us. I admit that about my own life. I don't know if you've experienced that yet. I hope you will. You say, that's a terrible thing to say. You hope you, that I'll discover how sinful I am? Yes, 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 I hope you do. 
You know why? Because God's grace is much bigger than it. God's grace is so much more. And at our, we, we fear to be fully known because we don't think we could be fully loved if we were fully known. If someone really knew me on the inside, what I really am like, nobody would love me. And that fear can only be addressed through relationship with Jesus Christ. It can be addressed through relationship with Jesus Christ because his love is unconditional. Right? He does know everything that's there. Even the stuff you don't know is there. So here's the thing. The more I've gotten to know my own sinfulness... You think, that's terrible, that's bad news. No, no, no. The more I've got to know my own sinfulness, good things have come out of my life. Because as God, who is good and reveals things in the timing of, you know, his timing, he helps you deal with those things. He pours his grace on those things. He forgives those things. He cleanses you from those things. He frees you from those things. And you know what results? Gratitude. Worship. Self-forgetfulness. All the things you can't produce on your own. So if your worship is small, I pray that God would reveal stuff in your heart and then show you how much bigger his grace is. If your humility is too small, same thing. If your gratitude is anemic, I pray that you'll understand the depths and width and height of the love of God for your sin. For you, not for your sin, but you in your sin. Because then you'll worship. Then you'll praise God. Then you'll be thankful. Then, you, then a new passion will roll out of you. If you say, I became a Christian at five, you've got you to think differently. Some people, they have it, it's very clear to them. They, they were 35, they, were, they lived a miserable life. No, no, everybody's 35, but they, they, they can look back on it. I, I have friends who, this is what they tell me. They look back on it and they go, I love the miserable life. It's nothing like the life I'm living now. I'm so thankful that God saved me. It's clear. But if you were like me, God saved when you're really young, you became a Christian when you're really young, you've got to ask a different question. You've got to say, what would have been the results if Jesus had never been a part of my life? Well, you might not have been robbing banks. But that self-focus might have been unchecked. That self-centeredness might have been unchecked. I know that even though I struggle with a lot of these things, the influence of Jesus in my life is a huge difference maker. But for the grace of God, uh, it would be a lot worse. And I know he's working in me an incredible uh, transformation that he has in mind. So at one time we were like this, foolish, deceived, enslaved, to all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness... And love of God our Savior appeared. He saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. So having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. I've been sharing this with you sort of in bits and pieces through the last number of months. Everything Jesus did, everyone, everything Jesus did was so that we would trust him and also to give us an example. It's not my quote, not original to me. I read it. I've been just mulling on it, mulling on it, mulling on it. So first, why do we trust Jesus? Why do we trust Jesus? Because... We were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
But the kindness of, and love of God appeared while we were in that condition. And he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we may become heirs having the hope of eternal life. Why do we trust him? Because of what he did. Because of how he loved us. That's why we trust him. He loved us like no one else loved us. He loved us first. He loved us most. There's no other love that's as pure. So that's why we trust him. That's why we trust him. But here's the second part of that. What would it be like if we imitated his example? Everything Jesus did was so that we trust him and so that we'd have an example. What would it be like if we imitated his example? So what, it, what were the, the three words that stand out to me? It's the kindness and love of God and also because of his mercy. Those are the three words, kindness, love, and mercy. So if we imitated Christ's example, our lives would be full of kindness, love, and mercy to others. Even to those that oppress us, threaten our rights, speak badly of us, and do us harm. Kindness, love, and mercy in response. Historically, we see examples of this kindness, love, and mercy for those who are oppressed. Right? We see examples. And every time I see it, I say, that's the transformation that Jesus brings. I have friends who say, well, what about the Crusades? What about this, that? Things that Christians have done that are really not good. I say, that's not an example of the transformation that Jesus brings to a life. It doesn't look at all like his example. But let me tell you about ones where it does look like his example. Uh, some of you might, old, you might be older to know this one, the story of Corrie ten Boom, right? Taken to Ravensbrück concentration camp for hiding Jewish uh, people in, in the Second World War in Holland. And while she's in the concentration camp in Ravensbrück, her sister, uh, Betsy, dies. Years later, she runs into one of the prison guards who mistreated her and her sister in a church service where she's speaking on forgiveness, and the guy comes up and says, isn't it great now that we're both Christians? And she feels that anger, she feels that revenge, she feels that bitterness welling up. She cries out to God, and God halts it in his tracks. She reaches out and shakes his hand, and there's reconciliation. Only God, only God could do this. Kindness, love, and mercy for our oppressors. David Wilkerson goes into, I, I, I forget the time period, 60s or 70s gangs in New York, roughly. And uh, he meets a guy named Nicky Cruz. And Nicky Cruz, with his switchblade, tells David Wilkerson, Preacher, I could cut you into a hundred little pieces. And David Wilkerson's famous reply is that, Yes, you could. And every one of those pieces would tell you that God loves you. That's the transformation that Jesus brings to a human heart. My friend who lives in Turkey, I can't, I'll mention his name, but he is, their church, they meet on a weekly basis. The police cordon off the area to keep them safe. It's not one of the toughest nations to live in for Christians, but it, there is some restrictions and difficulties. And, uh, but they receive re regular bomb threats. And one of the bomb threats was just put on their church's Facebook page. And um, the police were able to track down who it was and bring him into court. And it's, it's 
the rule of law is important in Turkey generally, and so at, at, at that time, uh, the consequences for um, making a bomb threat like that was potentially 25 years in prison. So they caught the young man who did it, and they brought him into the courts. And uh, the Christians from the, the Christian leadership from the Christian church was there, and then the extended family of this young man was there, and they were devastated just absolutely devastated. Here was this young man about 25 years to go into incarceration. And uh, so the judge did his deliberations, and then he said, is there anything that you want to say uh, to the church? And the pastor got up, the Turkish pastor, and he got up and he said, you know, we have a story about a man in our scriptures that reminds us of this situation. His name was Paul, and he wanted to destroy the church too. But then his life was so transformed that he became a great friend of the church. And we think that, when they say, and when we honor the courts, we honor the laws of, of Turkey, and whatever judge you determine, we will stand behind. But because we think this man could become a great friend of the church, even though now he is an enemy, we would ask for mercy. They gave him one year sentence. The family on the other side of the courtroom flooded over, throwing their arms around the necks of the pastors of the Turkish church. Kindness, love, and mercy. And all of this started when Jesus cried out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He offered forgiveness and reconciliation to all humankind, and his representatives still offer it today to every type of person all over the globe. When I think of the implications of this gospel for my life, I realize the gospel has a lot of work to do on me. A lot of work to do on me. That my life, my breath would be mercy, love, gentleness, goodness. That we would be a a culture within the culture that's good, but that we'd be a, a people for others as well. It wouldn't just stay there, not just us being good to each other, that we'd be a good in the community. People would say, wow, they're good. My preconceived idea was they were bad, and now they're, I see that something has happened in their lives that's not even human, humanly explainable. At the end of the day, we want to be able to share the life that Jesus has brought into our, our lives, the transformation that he's brought into our lives. And so, I don't know where you're all at. Let me just pick two crowds here real quick, make it very specific. If you're a follower of Jesus, but you're realizing that this this radical, scandalous good news about Jesus has more implications, sorry, has more implications for your life than you maybe have previously realized, I'm also realizing that. I'm also discovering that. I'm also discovering that the transformation that God's done in my life is not done. And that there's so much more he wants to work out in me. I'm not going to just filter my speech or constrain my action. God wants to work in my heart so that the seed of my speech and the seed of my actions is changed. He wants to work out a work on the inside. 
And so I've got to ask God, will you change my heart? When I'm all about my rights, when I'm all about my fights, when I'm all about wanting to hit back, would you change my heart? Would you deal with those areas of my heart? Would you change that as well? And then let just speak to another group maybe here as well, and that's those, maybe you said, I've never really said yes to God or yes to following Jesus. That's not been what I've, I haven't gone there yet. Um, today could be your day to do that. Today could be that day where you say, God, I need your forgiveness and I need your leadership in my life. I want you to begin the process of transformation. I want, you, I, want, I want to open up my heart to you in the areas that you want to transform and change. And I want to become like you. I want to become like you in your gentleness, your mercy, your love. I want to be transformed. Today, if you're in the former group, I'm going to ask you just to pray your own prayer to God about that. If you're in the latter group, if you're in that group, you say, I've never made that decision for Christ, I'm going to lead you. I'll lead you in a prayer that you can pray. Again, God sees your heart. That's the most important is, is the heart response that says yes to God's love and his leadership. But let's stand together as we finish this off together. So if you're saying yes to God for the first time today, let me just lead you, and you can repeat this uh, silently or... Uh, or even in, put it into your own words. Lord Jesus, thank you for your love. Thank you for your gentleness and thank you for your mercy. Thank you that while I was indifferent towards you or maybe even a little bit hostile towards you, that you didn't give up on me, but you pursued me. That you wanted a relationship with me and you wanted to give me eternal life. You wanted to forgive me, and you wanted to invite me into your family. You wanted to make me a son or a daughter. Thank you for that. And thank you for going to the cross. Thank you for uh, taking my place, for being in the place where really I should have paid, but you paid. And thank you that out of that, you offer forgiveness to me today. So I'm sorry. I'm sorry for living a life separate from you, independent from you, and now I want to live life with you. So I ask you for your leadership. Would you guide me? Would you lead me? I want to uh, live that life adventure where uh, you use me to do good in the world, where you en empower me and guide me uh, to be your follower. I'm going to need your help all the way. So I invite you to lead, and today I choose to follow. We say all this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Hey, if you made that decision today, it's good news, so you should really tell somebody. If you came with somebody who you think might have already made that decision, tell them. If uh, you don't know someone you would be comfortable telling that to, uh, you can catch me later at the meal or, some, or somebody else or maybe one of our prayer team and tell them. And we'd love to, we'd love to just talk about the first steps uh, that you're taking today.